On today's episode, a breakdown of the ongoing battle to pass meaningful infrastructure, workers in Kansas have had enough of deplorable working conditions, and a deeper dive into the first politician I ever supported. I'm Brad Sprinkle, and welcome to The Progressive Project. Welcome to Episode 2 of The Progressive Project. Off the top, I want to thank those who have listened to and provided feedback for the first episode. This podcast is growing at a snail's pace, but a pace nonetheless. So thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can subscribe and follow the podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, and Pocket Cast. And with that, let's get to the show. So the first topic I'd like to cover today is the continuing struggle on passing both a bipartisan, traditional infrastructure bill and a second, more robust, human infrastructure plan. This has been a top priority of the Biden administration since the passage of COVID-19 relief back in March. Unfortunately, even though the Democrats control the White House, Senate, and the House of Representatives, Republicans continue to wield enormous political power. Joe Biden has always prided himself on reaching across the aisle, striving to reach a consensus with his Republican colleagues. Sadly, this time, it may cost the American people dearly. So, let's start with the bipartisan proposal. A few weeks back, 20 senators, 10 Democrats, and 10 Republicans agreed in principle to $579 billion in new spending. Essentially, this money would be earmarked for what can be considered traditional infrastructure projects, roads, bridges, airports, ports and waterways, just to name a few. Now, I know $579 billion sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But when taken into context, Joe Biden campaigned on $2 trillion of spending. So what we have on the table is a $1.5 trillion reduction. This incredible concession to the GOP is pretty incredible. When again, you consider that the Democratic Party controls the executive and legislative branches. So, if this was the end of the story, it would have a pretty depressing conclusion. However, in concert with the bipartisan bill, Senate Democrats have reached an agreement, in principle, to a $3.5 trillion human infrastructure deal. So what would be included in this more robust package? I'm glad you asked. For starters, you have long overdue environmental initiatives such as incentives for wind and solar power while discouraging emission of carbon dioxide from major power companies. Additionally, you have a powerful laundry list of proposals such as free community college, subsidized child care, paid family leave, and the extension of the very popular child tax credits. This bill has the potential to be one of the most consequential pieces of legislation since FDR and the New Deal of the 1930s, almost 100 years ago. Alas, this groundbreaking charter faces an almost insurmountable uphill climb. And why is that? Because a few centrist Democrats and the entire Republican wing of the Senate are not going to support such a robust proposal. The primary reason is because, in order to finance such a plan, several tax increases would likely need to be enacted. And of course, Republicans and moderate-leaning Democrats have absolutely no interest in such tax, tax hikes. Can you guess why that might be? Sadly, it's pretty simple. Wealthy political donors do not want tax increases, ever, under any circumstances. 
So what chance does this proposal have of passing? The only recourse is something called reconciliation. This form of legislation can be passed a few times a year and must be directly related to the federal budget. If this requirement is met, it only takes a simple majority of 51 to pass in the Senate as opposed to 60 with a traditional bill. As it stands, Democrats hold the slimmest majority possible, with Kamala Harris being the crucial tie-breaking tie vote. Sadly, this would require all 50 Democratic senators to vote in favor of this sweeping, transformative legislation. To put it bluntly, you have a few centrist Democrats more interested in leveraging political power than delivering real, tangible results for their constituents. With the likes of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema threatening to not vote for this bill, Joe Biden has a very simple set of questions to answer. How much pressure are you willing to put on these self-absorbed, power-hungry senators? Are you willing to send Vice President Harris to West Virginia and Arizona and publicly declare that these senators do not have your best interests at heart? A few months back, Vice President Harris did precisely that. All she had to do was conduct a few television interviews, and before you knew it, Joe Manchin was on board with Joe Biden's COVID-19 relief package. Quite frankly, I don't understand why this tactic isn't utilized more often. But as it currently stands, public pressure from Joe Biden or Vice President Harris appear unlikely. So at the end of the day, the most likely scenario, in my opinion, is the bipartisan legislation will pass sometime in the upcoming weeks. But sadly, I do not foresee the same fortune for the human infrastructure plan. Not only does this outcome hurt the American people, but come 2022, the Democratic Party will absolutely suffer the consequences. Midterms are generally unfavorable to the party in power, and with little consequential legislation to take home to their constituents, I suspect a Republican bloodbath in the House and Senate. And if that does indeed happen, that's a wrap for Joe Biden's presidency. Unfortunately, this next story is just the latest example of inhumane, unfair working conditions that millions of American employees have to deal with on a daily basis. So let me give you the details. Hundreds of employees that work at a Frito-Lay's warehouse in Topeka, Kansas, are going on strike for the very first time. Employees have a laundry list of complaints against the multi-billion dollar conglomerate. According to hundreds of workers at the plant, employees are forced, not encouraged, but forced to work 84 hours a week. Let that sink in for a moment. That's seven 12-hour days or 16-plus hours in a traditional five-day work week. That allegation is egregious enough on its own, but sadly, there's more. Some workers claim they haven't had a single day off in five-plus months, including weekends. To put a face to this story, I want to quote a worker from the plant via a Vice article I read the other day. When asked about his reasons for going on strike, Mark McCarter stated the following, After 37 years, I still get forced to work 12 hours a day, 7 days a week. Seven years ago, my wife passed away and I spent a lot of time in grief counseling, and I told the company I don't want to work 12 hours a day, 7 days a week anymore. I ended up getting family medical leave unpaid, but they're still having me do it sometimes. You come in at 7 a.m. and not only do you work 8 hours, but when you get off at 3 p.m., they force you to work a double shift and you have to come back at 3 a.m. There's 850 employees and it's true for half or three quarters of them. 
That's an unbelievable quote in the year 2021. So, what is Frito-Lay is prepared to do in order to satisfy their loyal, exhausted employees? According to reports, the company has offered a 4% raise in wages over the next two years and a cutback of hours to 60 per week, not 40, 60. It's pretty amazing that almost 100 years after the genesis of the 40-hour work week, limited to five days a week and guaranteeing time and a half for work over 40 hours, we're still in a position where 60 hours a week is considered a peace offering. Thankfully, in my opinion, labor workers are not satisfied with this offer and have vowed to strike until forced overtime is fully eliminated. As I stated at the beginning of this segment, this story is just one example of a systemic problem that continues to fester under laissez-faire, unfettered capitalism. A few months back, Amazon came under heavy fire when stories surfaced about unspeakable working conditions. For example, several employees for the second largest employer in the country claimed that truck drivers were forced to, quote, urinate in bottles and defecate in bags in order to keep up with the insane demand of deliveries during the coronavirus pandemic. In addition, every single second of an employee's day is monitored, including bathroom breaks and any time deemed, quote, off task. Numerous stories of being laid off or fired via text message have also been reported. Workers in Bessemer, Alabama, attempted to unionize their plant a few months back, but failed to do so in large part due to overwhelming pressure and bullying techniques employed by Amazon. Unfortunately, these harrowing stories of horrific working conditions exist all over the country, and a swift shift in the relationship between worker and CEO appear a distant dream at this moment in time. Numerous measures could help narrow the ever-growing wealth gap, such as increasing the federal minimum wage, which, as, which has been stagnant at $7.25 since 2009, 12 years ago. And passing legislation not only allows, but encourages unions to thrive in protecting valuable worker rights. It's time to rethink the American business model. Yes, companies have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits for their shareholders, which leaves workers long in the rearview mirror of concern. But to close this segment out, just imagine this hypothetical scenario. If, one day in the near future, every single CEO of all the major Fortune 500 companies decided to quit in unison and go on strike, what would be the financial consequence? Minimal. Some figurehead would be given the job until the situation is settled and business would resume per usual. Now, imagine the same basic framework, but instead of every CEO walking out, millions of factory and warehouse workers all walked out into the streets demanding fair and humane working conditions. The United States would lose millions, if not billions, of productivity in a single day. Let's work to bring power back to the average worker. Because at the end of the day, without them, we'd have a disastrous set of circumstances on our hands. So this week, I wanted to do a deep dive into the politician that partially inspired me to A, take an interest in politics to begin with, and B, do this podcast to speak my progressive views and ideals. So without further ado, I give you the latest version of TPP investigates. 
As I mentioned in my introductory podcast, a sizable amount of my political curiosity was sparked by listening to one man, a humble senator from Vermont with a platform that truly reflected the will of the people. I'm speaking, of course, of Bernie Sanders. So let me give you a brief primer on his background and where he came from. In the 1960s, Sanders attended Brooklyn College before graduating from the University of Chicago. As a young man, Sanders took an immediate interest in political activism. In the middle of the civil rights movement, Sanders was front and center as he joined the Congress of Racial Equality and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. A few years later, Sanders moved to Vermont, where he immediately attempted to make a difference. After a few failed attempts of running third party, he became mayor of Burlington in 1981. Sanders was immensely popular as he was re-elected three times. Fast forward to 1990, where Sanders ran for and became a member of the House of Representatives. After 16 years of impassioned service, he became a U.S. Senator in 2006, has been re-elected twice, and currently serves as the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. Obviously, Sanders will forever be best known for his failed bids in 2016 and 2020 to become the President of the United States. Sanders was seen as a long-shot underdog back in 2016, but ran a strong campaign only to finish second in the Democratic primaries to Hillary Clinton. 2020 saw Sanders as a serious contender, but his run ran out of steam after Joe Biden dominated Super Tuesday and ran away with the Democratic nomination. So, that's a brief summary of Bernie Sanders and his political career. Now I'd like to focus on the reasons why I hold him in such high regard. For starters, as a politically naive 35-year-old, I just assumed massive amounts of money and donations were absolutely required to run a successful presidential campaign. Apparently, that's true more or less 90% of the time, if not more. However, when Sanders spoke of small donations and refusing to take money from Wall Street, big corporations, and other nefarious interests, I was immediately intrigued. Why, you might ask? Because in my opinion, money in politics is at the heart of why people fundamentally do not trust politicians. Just think about it. When any standard politician takes a large contribution from the NRA, Exxon, or Halliburton, what do you believe these multinational corporations want in return? Of course, they want legislation that favors their business. But there's a huge problem with that. Politicians are elected representatives of their constituents, not companies and businesses. At least that's how it should be. Another platform position that caught my interest was his unwavering desire to shrink the ever-growing wealth gap. As a result of years of failed trickle-down economics, the gap between CEOs and their employees has ballooned and continues to do so as we speak. Sanders ran on raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, pushing for legislation that would strengthen unions and taxing CEOs and large corporations fairly. When you have the likes of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and the Walton family shipping millions of taxable dollars overseas into what are known as tax havens, you have a system that is fundamentally broken. Sanders called for stiffer penalties for tax thieves and corporations that ship jobs overseas as opposed to paying American workers a fair living wage. Not only does Bernie Sanders have an outstanding platform truly focused on average everyday workers, but he has been preaching the same message for his entire political career. What's one of the major complaints people have about politicians? 
They flip-flop. They change their positions frequently. They have little to no ideological consistency. So, with over 50 years of political experience, knowledge, and hard work, what am I left to believe about Bernie Sanders? He actually believes in what he's fighting for. At the height of unfettered capitalism in the 1980s, being a democratic socialist was an extremely unpopular position. Today, more people, especially those under the age of 30, identify themselves as such. Regardless, whether grossly unpopular or trendy in nature, Sanders has never wavered, refusing to bend to the political winds of the day in order to favor more votes. At the end of the day, Bernie Sanders represents something very special to me. An underdog with less funding and positive media exposure than his colleagues can truly make a difference. What are you willing to fight for? Are you willing to withstand crushing pressure from all directions in order to maintain your set of principles? In my humble opinion, Sanders has done that against every single conceivable odd. And for that, I am forever grateful. So that's going to do it for episode two. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hate to continue to plug the platforms, but alas, here I go. Please check out the podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, and Pocket Cast. Hopefully, as my listenership increases, I'll be able to run a few ads and start to monetize this passion project. I know at the end of the last episode, I stated I'd be releasing new episodes every Tuesday and Friday, but for now, I'm going to stick with Tuesdays, so we'll be doing one a week. This allows me more time to prepare and work on other projects that I have going on right now. So thank you for listening, and this has been The Progressive Project.